I feel like robots are taking over the world. Welcome to the 19th episode of All of the Above, a weekly podcast about design, code, and learning. Each week, an instructional designer, a user experience designer, and a software engineer take apart the world one topic at a time. My name is Sean, and as always, I am joined by my co-hosts, Sam Batner. Hello. And Brian Brush. Hey, everyone. And today, we have the amazingly lovely Hillary Hutchings. Say hello, Hillary. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So just to let everyone else know, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So my name's Hilary Hutchings, and I recently graduated from the Columbus College of Art and Design with a degree in interior design. And I've been working for about a year in the field, and um, I currently work at a architect and engineering firm here in Columbus. And we kind of specialize in multifamily housing, which is like apartments, condos, and kind of our bread and butter is um, elderly care, so assisted living some Alzheimer's care and nursing home. Beautiful. The reason we are having the amazing and lovely Hillary on the show is because of her knowledge of interior design, which is our topic this week. How fitting. Um, so <laughs> it's not like we choose this beforehand. Hillary, what was the uh, reason that she wanted to study interior design? That's a good question. It's kind of complicated for me to answer because I never knew what I wanted to be when I was growing up, but I had such a wide and varied interest that I kind of just tried out a bunch of things. And uh, I found interior design kind of combined a bunch of my interests, like art and like psychology, anthropology a little bit, and definitely design. So that's kind of how I landed on that. Interesting. And since I know the sort of firm or group that you're working with focuses on elderly care, was that something that you landed into because it was like a job at the time or was it something that you were a little more proactive about seeking out? Uh, a little bit of both. Healthcare in general I find really interesting. I wanted to do design that had a big impact on like larger communities so I knew I didn't want to do like residential but I'd always had an interest in either healthcare or education and this job this opportunity just kind of came along and I figured out I figured I'd try it and it's been pretty fun so far. Awesome. So Sam, if you would like to, uh, it looks like you're first on the docket. All right. So in the world of interior design and architecture and all kinds of other things that have to do around buildings, there's a lot of digital design. So for example, the other day I was actually at my parents' house for Easter and they're talking about redoing their kitchen. And my dad was coming up with all these plans and all these different things to do with the kitchen and how we're going to redo the cabinetry and how we're going to tear out everything and move the fridge and do all this other stuff. And he really said that he can do all the work, he just doesn't know how to design it. And he was wondering if there was a way for us to redesign our kitchen. And I looked at him and said, Father, we can redesign this kitchen online for free. So the question that I have for the group is, how does an interior designer survive in a world where digital designing is done online and pretty much anybody can do it without really having a degree in design. So Sam, you want to know how designers survive when there's so many like DIY apps out there? Yeah, how do you do it? Well, 
I kind of love and hate them. I think they're really great for people who, like homeowners, like your parents, who kind of just want to change up a room or two in their house. Um, I think they're really quite flexible and give you a lot of options. And they kind of help that homeowner do it on their own without spending a lot of money on a professional, which probably probably people in like my field in the residential section don't want to hear me say, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're really great for if you just want to figure out how to rearrange your couch in your living room. I think they're really awesome for that. And I think they've kind of opened up a lot of people's eyes to some of the design options that are out there or different styles. So now instead of just, you know, going to Target or Walmart and being like, okay, well, this is the couch they have. I guess I'll get that. You can go find another app and literally order anything off the internet now. So I think it's it's helping kind of support better, better design for homes. But at the same time, yeah, it can be a problem for professional designers. Um, but for small projects and things like that. I think I think it's pretty fun. I think it's great. I, I've used a few of those apps myself, both like on my own and at work, I've, just to see what they do. And they're, they're pretty good. So I'm curious with these apps, since I've not really used very many of them, um, the only one I've ever used, which I can't remember the name of, was essentially just a way to like measure my room and then would tell me if furniture would fit. And that was about it. Um, but it didn't keep in mind things like color choices or um, like flow and whether placing a piece of furniture in one part of the room is going to end up making like traffic have to deviate around the furniture in an odd way um, or lighting or anything like that. So do are there apps out there that keep in mind more than just arrangement of furniture in the room? Yeah, there are. There there are things that'll help you pick colors, coordinating colors and layout. I'm pretty sure there's probably one for like feng shui. Um, there's tons of tons of apps, but I think the problem is that you'd have to download a couple of them to kind of get the whole package, which if you had a professional do it, you kind of get all of that in one person. So I think that's where kind of the trade-off is. But yeah, they definitely don't take into account everything that would that a professional would, especially things like cost, um, availability. That's what I find like you've sometimes you have like clients or people you just run into on the street and you tell them you're an interior designer and they're like, oh, I saw this really cool thing on Pinterest. And you're like, yeah, that, that can't <laughs> happen. That's nope. Nope. So they're kind of they're great for generating ideas. They're not always so great for making things happen. Have you ever had anybody say, oh, I made this really cool thing on The Sims? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All the time. That's where most interior designers get their start. The Sims. <laughs> Sean, do you have uh, thoughts about how a interior designer will function or work around the sort of plethora of digital options that are coming into existence? I can see like how cars are becoming automated, like driverless cars. Uh, there's still a role of the actual designer or the driver to man the tools. So as the tools become smarter, there you'll eventually not have just three or four apps that do X, Y, and Z. You'll have one thing that does all of that, but you still need a person that knows if <laughs> what it makes is good or not, uh, and also to control the tool as it is. Um, so there will still be a role for like interior designers it just will shift from what currently is into some other form that we don't really know exactly what it looks like as of yet. And that's the same for every kind of profession now, uh, just with automation and miniaturization of everything and things just learning. <laughs> 
yeah, so there'll always be a need. And also because of um, how like you can only build so many places and to the point where like, oh, now we've built as much as we can. Now we have to redo the insides to match the needs of the people that will actually be in the inside of this place. So that will always really need to happen. <laughs> It's one of the things that I was thinking about when looking at Sam's question was while there are a lot of digital tools out there and some of them may be able to sort of give us like preset configurations for things, somebody has to initially tell it, hey, these this layout works well or this set of furniture will fit into that space. So there needs to still be somebody curating those choices. Um, and then additionally, like use case is a huge part of interior design. So you could take a square room and depending on whether that room is going to be used to treat patients or teach kids or as a quiet place to study or a bedroom or whatever it is that suddenly um, brings about a huge change in the way you're going to design or look at that room. Um, so I, I guess for me, there's still going to have to be somebody giving guidance and in the same way that like a application requires somebody to code it, a like interior design app is still going to require somebody to input the way things can be done and what works and what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like everything you guys have said that's kind of hitting the nail on the head there. That's pretty much exactly right. They're great for residential. It wouldn't work so well if you were trying to design a hospital with one of those apps. But uh, kind of going back to what Sean said, everything is kind of becoming smarter too in, in the sense that um, even furniture now has the capability to report back to like a smartphone app. And sorry, the dog is biting me. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, so everything is becoming more smarter and kind of giving more real time feedback. And it's not always just tech items now, you know, like we have Nest and some of the like Philips Hue, but even um, more of the systems and the furniture, everything is kind of becoming like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now the dog is attacking the microphone. <laughs> But I also, um, Sam, with your question, I kind of also thought of it, it reminded me in a different way of how technology is kind of reshaping interiors. And I don't know if you've heard of what McDonald's is doing right now, but they are thinking by 2020 that the whole McDonald's experience will be totally evolved and brand new and it all is based on technology. So you're not even going to recognize a McDonald's in like five more years. I wouldn't recognize one now. <laughs> I was going to say, it's been a while since I've been in one. Well, now they want to do, have you heard of like the, the Disney magic band? Yeah. Yep. Yes, that's awesome. McDonald's wants to take that technology and make it for themselves. So you could kind of just walk in and have your order already placed and they'd bring you the food. So it's kind of changing the whole restaurant feeling. There's no like checkout counter. There's no, you know, apple pies rotting on the <laughs> shelves over there. But so technology plays a huge part in interior design and it, it can be really helpful and it can also be a pain in the butt. Yeah, the technology like being integrated in and that sort of stuff has been something I've been considering a little bit more. So my roommate recently purchased a Roomba, uh, which is lovely <laughs> having two animals in the house and a very hairy roommate sometimes <laughs> who when all of us are shedding and there's hair and dirt and everything everywhere, the little Roomba just is programmed and it knows when we're not in the house and it goes and it cleans. But since it needs a docking station, it's now has like a specific spot in the the layout of our room and it's almost like it's a featured thing in our living room at this moment <laughs> 
<laughs> and sometimes some of that technology, while convenient, we don't exactly want it to be like out in the open and trying to find clever, creative ways to hide those things um, is also, I think, like an interesting challenge because I know some of my favorite interiors that I've ever seen um, have a lot of like little hidden nooks and crannies where tables come sliding out of or uh, drawers are hidden all over the place that you wouldn't realize they would be there. And that provides a lot of great utility while also not being a distracting visual element. But Sam, what was uh, your thought on your question? I feel like robots are taking over the world. So do you... (laughs) You and the creepy whispers. So do you feel that things like sort of design choices and something that's as personal as your living environment could be designed by a robot in a way that you would be comfortable with? Uh, I do think so. Uh, Mostly because of a lot of the algorithms that I studied. And I don't know if we've ever brought it up in another episode. Yeah, we did actually. And algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, like searching algorithms, that's like the algorithm to be, if you were an algorithm, you'd be the number one, but there are searching algorithms that kind of go through and we'll search for things and do whatever and find the optimal path or things like that. You can apply those types of algorithms to like feng shui or different optimal things for rooms and using computer vision and that you can kind of create the perfect room. Computer vision. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. But with those types of things, I feel like this could become a very automated system. But then I think the hip people in the world will not do it because there's no substance to it. It's a computer really designing everything and not a person. Another really cool way to look at it is if we go more on a macro scale and less on a micro scale, games like... Minecraft. Sorry, I had to think of one really quick because I was going to do SimCity, but I was like, I don't think it works in that. But a game like Minecraft where it builds an entire world and then within that world, it will build little villages based on procedural algorithms. And it kind of builds those. I mean, they're roughly optimized, but things like that. I feel like in the future, this is going to be a much more automated area. That's just how I feel, though. I don't know what I'm talking about majority of the time. Yeah, I'm just like, I can certainly see automation being put in place for things like utility Um, but in some ways like when I'm thinking of personality or how you communicate what type of person you are by the environment that you surround yourself with um, that those sorts of things would be a lot more difficult to effectively communicate like for me there has to be like wide open floor space and everything gets shoved to the side but there are some people who like to put everything like right in the middle of a space Um, and I feel like that says a lot about who we are as a person and I I'm sure that we could probably build into algorithms some sort of this is my personality type, which if anyone wants to learn about those, they can go back to episode 11. Um, But I'm not sure how well or effective that works, because even with personality types, as we've talked about before, like there's still a lot of variation within that. Um, So it will be interesting to see just like how these apps and these automation processes slowly try to enter this field. But um, did we have any other thoughts on Sam's topic before we move on? I, I just have one question for you, Brian. Is is your Roomba a DJ Roomba or or just a regular? I basic honestly one? don't know. Hassie could probably give you model and serial number. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a real. It's not a real model. You just strap a boombox to it. What is that? Oh, I strapped an MP3 player to one of those floor cleaning robots. Call him DJ Roomba. Little guy cruises around and plays music. What's hot, DJ Roomba? Games, go, they go. 
DJ Roomba tearing it up. Oh, well, I've always wanted to put the get two Roombas with the balloons and the knives. Have you ever seen that? I. Uh, Where you put a knife on maybe. the front of the Roomba and then a balloon hanging off the back and you have two of them like that. And then whichever one pops oh. the balloon on the other one first wins. That sounds fun. Cutting some Achilles tendons on the way. Yep. <laughs> Which when you're trying to make uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for your lunch break while a Roomba is constantly moving around your feet is incredibly difficult, by the way. <laughs> That's but I've seen like a flamethrower Roomba. Those look scary. <laughs> That's not real. It was on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find a video and it'll be frightening. <laughs> Reminds me of all the Robot Wars TV shows that have all gone away, sadly. Well, because I think that one person found like the the unbeatable robot, and then everyone's like, "Ah, oh, well, this is going to be a boring show after this." <laughs> so <they stop. laughs> all right. All right. Well, we feel like we're ready for Sean's topic. Oh yeah. All right, Sean, take it away. This is the opposite of robots. It's humans and those meddling kids. So I guess my question would be about uh, how do you design something that people will eventually move around? Like everything. You set up a room and then like, I don't like the bed here. I'm going to move it over here. I'm going to add a chair. I'm going to get rid of this chair. I'm going to move all the chairs over here. And you have to design for the flexibility of humans' randomness. So I was just wondering, Miss Hillary, how you how do you do that? Honestly, there's there's two approaches. Either you don't huh. care or you like screw everything down to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> which which does happen. Does happen. But yeah, I mean that can that can be a challenge, but I think interior design is so much more than a furniture or layout or arrangement that that's kind of like the smallest part of a job sometimes depending on what it is. But yeah, you you try and create a design that allows for flexibility and allows for rearrangement because you're creating it for the user, so whatever works best for them. And as a designer, you hope you get that right, but you I mean, you don't always know what they're going to be doing in the space at any given time, so if they need to rearrange things, that's that's fine. The larger overall kind of feel of your design should still convey what you were going for. Um, and it shouldn't really hinge on the furniture layout. But yeah, you can either let them do what they want or you can have complete control and, you know, bolt things down. Yeah, when, when I think to this question, I know I get sort of finicky and constantly have to rearrange or shuffle things around. Um, and that's just part of who I am. Like I, a change in my environment can often and sort of re-stimulate me if I'm feeling unproductive. I'll sometimes just shimmy, like even if it's a bookcase around or I will change the lighting or um, when I've been in places where I was allowed to paint, I might change the wall color. Um, but all of those like slight shifts are sort of what I need or desire in that moment. And so an interior designer, when they're designing initially, I feel like they're considering what that person's needs are then. And it's up to the persons who either come back to the interior designer down the line when they need a change to ask for advice or guidance. Or you just, as a designer, I guess, try to think modularly and how can stuff be easily shifted around and present multiple ideas or ways that a room could be arranged so as they need to change things, maybe they already have the guidance. But Sam, do you have thoughts to this? I think 
rooms should just be like Legos. And you just put a box in there with instructions and they put it together. And if they're rebels or engineers, they'll just build the room however they want without reading the instructions. Mm. Well, that's just the worst. (laughs) And then the room is the way that it was meant to be. The way the gods saw it. The gods? (laughs) The god. The god. Okay. Yes. Sorry to our pagan audience. I mean, (laughs) if... I'll send you a picture of... I don't have a picture of myself on my computer. <laughs> oh, you were going to send a picture of yourself? Is that what you were going to send? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I think rooms should be... When I think of interior design, I think less about furniture, which I think would be opposite of what I should think about. Or not opposite, but I should also, inc- also include that. But I think more about the things on the walls and the way the walls are set up and the door frames and the flooring and the fixtures and the ceiling and pretty much everything else minus the furniture because I feel like a room should be modular and move around and if you want this to be the kitchen then all you have to do is put a microwave in there on the floor and then that's your kitchen (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's pretty accurate as a question, I guess, for Hillary, one of the things that does intrigue me based upon Sam's crazy uh, talking point there is that as uh, buildings, like new buildings, are being constructed, I know there are a lot of interior designers who are concerned with just like new buildings and new environments. And how do you design for a room that will not have furniture in it? So, what are the things that you consider? And um, how do you sort of keep in mind like what people will eventually bring? into a place that you have no control over that makes sense um i think i think i know what you mean uh i would i would have to say like as an interior designer you're more concerned about experiences happening in the rooms and less about what's physically in them depending on what they are for new buildings where there's not furniture in the space or like i haven't specified furniture to go in the space but someone's bringing in their own items you kind of just you kind of create the shell of the room and pick materials and finishes that are going to best support whatever program that room is so if you're doing like a condo or an apartment you pick finishes that fit the residential feel and will perform well so it usually usually everything is based on like performance and price so those guide you when there's no furniture to really play off of but a lot of it just has to do with the experience and what your the program of the space is so you know if you're doing like a lab or a hospital you don't it doesn't matter what furniture you pick because there's only certain things you can even use so you try and just create a a good experience or kind of a way to get the response that is needed or wanted by the client awesome if that makes sense it does. You were able to turn my mangled question into a nice answer, so thank you. Um, but Sean, did you have thoughts to your question? Not at the moment. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess we can transition into my topic, which is on learning environments. So one of the things that I have spent a lot of time thinking about is... Um, that as an instructional designer, but also a facilitator, I'm a little bit more cognizant of the environment that the training will be delivered in. So going purely off of like some anecdotal evidence, it seems uh, that the choices around interior architecture and design can have a pretty dramatic impact on not only the ability for people to learn, but also the ability to teach. 
So this doesn't just include like uh, seating arrangements, which I know and furniture and that sort of thing that we've talked about, but also stuff like lighting, temperature, acoustics, and so on. And there's some interesting research that I've sort of been filtering my way through concerning that topic. But before I get into it, I was curious as to what some of the best and worst learning environments you guys have been in and how you feel they impact your ability to learn. So Hillary, I might start with you again. Okay. One of the worst learning environments I've been in is a college like lecture hall where it was all white on the walls and the ceiling and there were no windows oh and it had gray carpeting and just metal tables and chairs and a podium and a and a screen, a projector screen. And that was the only thing to look at. Sounds like the beginning of the uh, 1984 when they all go to the heat. <laughs> <laughs> It was really bad. It, it also used to the contrast because the walls were so bright and the podium was black. It it screwed with your eyes and it I couldn't like focus on it because it'd start, it's kind of like an optical illusion where you stare at it too long. You get kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the worst. And it was cold in there. So it was kind of like you just you hated that room. Yeah, especially for an environment that visually sounds cold and then to also make it physically cold. That does sound unbearable. Yes. Yes. It was bad. Uh, but did you have a best one that you enjoyed the most that you can remember? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of good ones. Okay. Well, that could be. Because it was one of the things that was intriguing me is I didn't know if I've just not been in that many good learning environments or if it's that it's so much easier to recall the bad ones because it results in such a bad experience, which often will stick around in our memory a lot longer. I think it's both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But Sam, uh, was there a best and worst learning environment that you can recall? Yeah, uh, I think mine is the opposite of you guys because I can't think of any bad learning environments, but I can think of really good ones. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so the best learning environment I think I've ever had in my life, and it is, it's perfect, but I haven't done a lot in the extreme space of this. So maybe there's a better one. I would assume I have a few examples as well. But when I was on the Gauley River whitewater rafting and the only thing we did beforehand to learn was just how to survive if bad things were to happen, worst case scenario. <laughs> you don't really learn how to paddle the boat until you're about to go into a rapid. So you learn really quick. And that that's probably the best learning environment that I've be ever been in because I did learn really quick how to, how to paddle a boat in a rapid and not fall sort of. out <laughs> so uh do or die approach pretty much yeah do or die which kind of brings it up the first time you are to go skydiving you you know what you're getting into and you kind of know from everything you've done but you don't really learn how to do it until you're doing it and once you're doing it you better get it right or it's it's bad splat yeah there's or bounce that's usually what happens <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that your learning environments that you are at least recalling are centered around outdoor real world environments, which that's not the topic. But yeah, it's not the topic, but it is. It does fit with my topic of, uh, of learning environments, uh, which is interesting. And so we might talk about that some more, too. But um, Sean, how about you? Yeah, it's a uh, learning environments. It's very hard to find a good one other than ones that were more like hands-on. Everything else goes to the center part of 
the the whole spectrum and it's like eh, it was all right i guess it was a room there was chairs probably a board or a screen in the front eh, it was all right but then the bad ones you know they're just like <laughs> exactly what hillary described just like why did the people paint the colors like this why are the desks so uncomfortable why is it so cold uh things like that or why is the projector purple everything they have like i've always been in a room where the projector is purple i don't like every year in school that's a very strange issue you've experienced <laughs> yeah just purple projectors it's just like if you don't replace your bulb you'll get a purple projector but yeah the good ones are just more like hands-on real life stuff because you're you're doing stuff that you hopefully want to do and you're learning while you're doing it yeah well yeah it's i think you guys are speaking more of curriculum than the environment yeah the method of delivery often gets confused with the learning environment which is why i think like a lot of instructional designers don't consider the environment in which training will be delivered and so like i'm even thinking too when i've trained for retail and they always assumed that we would have a like very spacious room (laughs) with which we could train in that nobody else had access to And that was not the case. Like the first training environment I ever did professionally was a little like, what was that? Uh, You guys know it was like, what, four feet wide and then like six feet long. And that was all the space. You mean the break room slash stock room slash training environment slash training area yeah slash um, lockers so, slash <laughs> yeah slash where everyone ate slash lunch. clock in clock out slash yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was a nightmare. it was everything but like when you're designing your training how do you consider all of those environments that's a question that i think a lot of instructional designers aren't pondering at all but yeah i do think that hillary's right that we have started to slip more into that trap of thinking more about curriculum or method of delivery um, or the design of the training itself and not necessarily the actual implementation within uh, a learning environment but yeah because usually uh, like when it becomes bad enough for me to notice then like the purple projector or the bad desks or like there's only left-handed desks and everyone is mostly right-handed and you're like why Why does this room only have left-handed desks um then it just sticks out in your brain and if it's just okay i don't think it's memorable and then the good ones i don't think you remember it you learn you remember what you learned you don't really remember the room that you're in that could be because i think some of the best learning environments reduce the distraction of the environment itself and focus more on uh or allow us to focus more on the actual content that's being delivered yeah but one of the sort of studies that i had found interesting which has an even more ridiculous name than the last study that I referenced on the show. Um, So this one is titled A Holistic Multi-Level Analysis Identifying the Impact of Classroom Design on People's Learning. It makes sense. They just... Yeah. Is that a British study? Uh, It is from... Is not British. Where's the school from? They always have fancy names. Yeah. Although uh, there are, what, four different ethnicities represented by the authors. So Ooh. maybe it was a collaboration of different cultures coming to produce that title. I mean, it's a very descriptive title. I wouldn't call it like, uh, you know, clickbait at all. It's just uh, <laughs> the, what's in the article is exactly what is described there. <laughs> Wait, what, what kind of bait? Click clickbait oh to answer hillary's question they are from england because that's where they did all of the uh the research at too 
um, because they did their research in Blackpool, England, and they it was over 2011 to 2012, and they studied 751 students in 34 classrooms spread out over seven different schools, and they were able to sort of consider every possible variable, so lighting and acoustics and furniture and equipment and all of those sorts of things, and they found that uh, like classrooms and the way that they're designed could result in a 25% impact, positive or negative, on a student's ability to learn. And so altogether, that could mean that in the worst possible classroom, it could leave some students a full year's worth behind in terms of their academic progress. So the interior design seems to have a very strong impact, but I was curious, um, Hillary, since I know you had mentioned a little bit uh, that you were curious with educational environments, um, what some of the things are that interior designers consider whenever developing or designing for uh, a learning environment? Okay, so when you're doing educational spaces, a lot of times they're not, sometimes they're not brand new builds. So you're trying to go for the best possible outcome of, you know, helping kids be more focused and like the spaces that they're in and things like that. But then you also have all the factors of like pre-existing conditions. So some of the things you want to design, you just can't because of what's already there or budget or, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff like that, a lot of factors go into education design. And it's kind of like a, a huge list of things you have to consider. So you could probably spend days just listing out all the things you have to look at and make sure you're you're achieving. So education design is a, is a hard one. There's a lot of components. If there was one improvement that you can make to every classroom in the U.S., what would that be? I definitely think natural light. Mm-hmm which is also hard because if you're in an urban area and you don't get a lot of light because you're surrounded by other buildings or you just don't have those windows in there because there was a time when schools, they thought that too much light was a bad thing. Um, But I would definitely add more natural light. Uh, One of the studies I've used in some of my um, school projects and stuff actually said that students progress 20% faster on math tests and 26% faster on reading tests in one year versus kids exposed to less light. So it does, it does have a big impact. So I would definitely say light and, um, more flexible furnishings. So which kind of goes back to Sean's question of what do you do when people want to rearrange? I think in classrooms, that's what you want them to do. You don't want them to be stuck in one configuration because, well, people don't all learn the same, but it's also very hard, especially in the lower school levels, um, to make kids sit still for hours at a time and stare straight ahead. So if you have furniture that allows them to kind of make their own configurations or adapt to the way they like to learn, so sitting, standing, or kind of like lounging. I think that would greatly improve attention spans. Yeah, that's actually, and I don't think it was in this article that I had mentioned, but there was another one that did discuss the importance of flexibility within the desks and arrangement within a room. Uh, Because, for example, if you are a teacher and you decide, okay, this uh, section I am going to teach via like a standard lecture, um, then you might just want them in your classic sort of grid uh, with even rows. But then if you're going to have a discussion with the students, then you might want to go into sort of like a semicircle or a bunch of 
of smaller circles so you can have small breakout discussions uh, and the arrangements of the room and the desks and sort of the even like visual distractions so if you have desks arranged by a window are they going to spend more time staring outside or are they going to spend their time discussing with the group that they've been assigned to um, so that arrangement can definitely have a big impact so i think that is something that needs to change and having gone to a high school where there were only little tiny like prison slit windows every like <laughs> third classroom that was all the rage uh, I, yeah it was that was miserable <laughs> I don't know why especially in winter there's there's a lot of schools that look a lot like prisons yeah that was very much our school and like i just i remember in winter i would go into school and it would be dark out and i would leave school and it would be dark out and i never saw the sunlight (laughs) and that's just like a miserable thing to do to kids even if it doesn't affect their ability to learn um it's just a sort of cruel and unusual way to treat children or even adults (laughs) in a college environment (laughs) <laughs> or people in a prison yeah also people in a prison <laughs> sean i thought i saw a note from you did you just drop in a, a reference for us somewhat uh in re- like for the, the sunlight sunlight natural light there is this really cool thing called colux uh, it's like c-o-e-l-u-x with a capital l because it's like that and it's it looks roughly amazing it's uh a way to trick people into thinking that there is natural light, like there is a sun out there and it's shining down. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen those before. They use them a lot in hospitals. I I do believe. Oh, that's cool. In airplanes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know anything about this particular name thing, so I'm trying to look at the link that you sent over. But um, I know that since we had mentioned Philips Hue, they also have some lights that are like alarm clocks that are designed to simulate natural light. Yeah, Yeah, and so it slowly increases the light in the room as it gets closer to the time for you to wake up so that when you do wake up, it's as if it was you were just waking up because the sunlight started to graze your eyes. And that sort of idea is really interesting to me. And as somebody who struggles a lot with seasonal depression on top of, you know, a standard depression, like those sorts of things are incredibly beneficial to me. So it is interesting seeing what they're doing in terms of artificial light. So I'll have to look out, look at this sort of artificial skylight idea that you sent over. Yeah, it's it's anything but, well, it is artificial, but if you had to look out a skylight and be like, oh yeah, that looks like outside, it's, it's pretty damn convincing, uh, but not just what you see out through this faux window but the light and the shadows that it creates when it comes into the room are pretty like you wouldn't second guess it as for anything but real light interesting yeah and i guess that's something that maybe can tie into what sam had been talking about where not only are the tools that help design the layout um potentially going to be something that can be automated but you can even start to better automate the lighting and coloring within rooms so that it can change more easily depending upon mood without having to send somebody to repaint something you could just have um, some sort of material or screen that would change colors accordingly to what people need for that environment yeah because if you uh just going back to like the sim city example uh have you guys ever heard of uh i think it's vincent ocal ocasala he pretty much beat sim city (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, he's the guy who still has the city that's just perpetually taking care of itself now, right? Yeah, he became obsessed with it, <laughs> and I think it. Uh, he eventually called it Magnasanti. Um, but it, he just created patterns and patterns, and he had just sketchbooks uh, of grid paper, just <laughs> based on like what is the best way of creating a Sim City that event it never dies is always good. Uh, in all the metrics, like uh, the political aspect, monetary, uh, death rates and birth rates, and pretty much it, it just comes down to everything being underground, uh, subways and no roads. And there's just a pattern that he found that if you repeat this pattern throughout this whole map, you're good. <laughs> but <laughs> people live long enough and they're just well enough to survive until they're, they've reached the point where they haven't hit, um, like they aren't taking more than they're putting in so as soon as that point hits they actually die <laughs> um why am i going through this oh yeah the the fake light <laughs> because a lot of it's underground uh there is no light but having this fake light thing coming on in uh it, it could help with uh dealing with underground mole person living oh yes, yes the mole people mm -hmm. they're very underrepresented <laughs> I'm glad you thought about them. The the way in which you got excited about that almost made it sound like that was your thesis in college. <laughs> Designing for the mole people. Mole people 101. Um yeah but another thing i did want to say to learning environments is so uh with our topic being interior design we're of course thinking of like physical environments um but learning environments you also have digital ones and designing those appropriately and we've talked about how awful stuff like blackboard is in the past mm. <laughs> um and then one of the things that really intrigues me is this idea of blended environments where you have what i would call like either simultaneously blended or separately blended and so simultaneous would be where you have digital learning environments within physical learning environments. So you're in the classroom and you also have an iPad or an iPod touch or some sort of mobile device and you're able to engage with the digital environment and then immediately transition back into a physical learning environment. Um, and that can result in maybe some changes in what the interior design would be and how do you help prevent people through the design of the physical space? Um, how do you help design so they don't get too caught up in the digital? and be able to break and focus back and forth? Um, how do you adjust lighting and, and coloring in rooms so that screens are comfortable to look at for certain periods of time and that sort of thing? Um, but then you also have separately blended environments, which would be that you have your physical environment at school, and then you also have a digital one whenever you return home or to a library or something like that. Um, and so that was just those three sort of categories were something that had interested me when I was considering this whole learning environment discussion. But... Um, feel like we've sort of hit on my topic so sam do you have a final thought for us i do all right <laughs> so the final thought is right now there are two people in the world only two that's it we're very uh unbiased for everything else or yeah there's two so there are two people in the world you have to figure out which one you are you're either a non-presser or a presser oh my goodness now we have to link to reddit i'm sorry dear audience that we have to link to that but there is a phenomenon known as the button which sam is referencing yeah i don't know so, uh, what you guys are talking about yeah never heard of that it is to briefly explain to everyone and it has 
nothing to do with interior design and Sam's final thoughts have nothing to ever do with our topic. All right. Well, bye. Yep. (laughs) Um, But the button on April Fool's Reddit uh, created a subreddit called The Button and posted a button that you could click and they gave no explanation as to what it was. So whenever it has a little timer and it's counting down and I think it's counting down from 60 seconds. Is that right, Sam? Yeah. And then you, if you click it, it resets the timer. (laughs) And since April 1st, nobody has allowed the timer to run out. And it's resulted in this crazy subculture where there are non-pressers who say we should just let the button completely run out. There are pressers who have pushed the button. There are people who only will push the button when it drops below a certain number of seconds. And they think everyone else is a heathen for clicking it sooner or later than that. Um, So it's a bizarre little world. So Sam, are you a presser or non-presser? Currently a non-presser. I'm calling myself a savior. I'm sub one. Yeah, see, I don't even understand what that means. Um, So with that uh, sort of final thought, Hillary, uh, is there a website where we could direct people to, even if it's a little bit outdated, to see some of the work that you've done or the things that you're interested in? Yes, I have a personal website, hutchingsdesign.com, but it is very out of date. It was mostly for school. So you can see kind of my school portfolio there. Wonderful. Well, we'll link to that, and uh, I'm sure we can get some updates uh, on uh, the wonderful things that you're doing from Sean from time to time, since you two are an adorable couple. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I like how that just was, went to dead silence. Like, neither of you were like, yeah, I really like this person. It was just, <laughs> it was just like, we... Yeah, I was hoping the cricket noise would <laughs> kick in. Uh, but did we have any other final things to say before we close out the show? No. Uh, thanks for having me <laughs> on. Thank you for being on. <laughs> and that was episode 19 of All of the Above. Uh, thank you, Hillary, for joining us today. She's wonderful. <laughs> to go more in-depth with everything we talked about, head over to allofftheabove.audio slash episodes slash 019 for valuable show notes and links. If you enjoyed this episode, you can go to allofftheabove.audio slash review to leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next week, listen to Katy Perry sing Last Friday Night in Simlish. Ooh, play it. <laughs>